Thank you. Um, thank you, Asma, and to the center, and Susan, and sorry for bringing us together. I would say that there's just one corrective to Asma's introduction. You'll note that on the program, hers is the only name that has no information about her other than her name. <laughs> name, rank, and serial number. And I guess I would just say that, um, you know, in her typical understated way, um, she's neglected to say something about her own intellectual contributions. Um, but I will um, say that she's been a member of our faculty, an incredibly generous um, intellectual leader of our faculty on, across so many levels. And as speaking from the perspective of being part of the Critical Race Studies program, she's brought an immense amount of richness of international perspective, of generosity, and um, I can refer you to her official bio, but I just wanted to make that personal bio since there's nothing there. <laughs> so um, there's been reference to, in the earlier panel to this now infamous 2011 gathering. Uh, the Critical Race Studies program convened along with the American Indian Studies Center. Uh, it was our annual symposium around the theme of race and sovereignty. Uh, and it was inspired, as I mentioned earlier, by the work of our Critical Race Studies teaching fellow, Addie Rolnick, who's now an associate professor of law at uh, the University of Nevada. And um, the symposium really grounded in a set of questions that Addie was trying to ask um, about um, reconceptualizing really the dominant discourse around race and sovereignty. So at least in the US context, sort of thinking domestically and then moving out, race and sovereignty have been conceptually segregated um, and really cast as mutually exclusive projects in which Sovereignty has primarily been linked to the struggles of Native Americans and other indigenous peoples, while the struggles of black people outside of Africa have largely been framed through the lens of race, and thus in terms of inclusion and rights of citizenship. And in part, um, I think this frame is a cause and a consequence of the erasure of American empire and its identity as a settler colonial project, so that resistance is cabined within a framework of inclusion into existing structures and arrangements. I think it's also related to the curiosities of US law, not unrelated to this erasure of American empire, under which race is cleaved from in indigeneity doctrinally. So for those of you that are not lawyers, what that means is that the apparatus, constitutional apparatus for thinking about race is different from the uh, constitutional apparatus for thinking about Indianness or Native American identity. So that specific rules, limited rights, and processes that are applicable um, in law to some but not all indigenous people are contingently exempt, and I stress that, um, from or at least shielded from contemporary forms of colorblind constitutional jurisprudence, which, as we know, more effectively wipes out remediation than it ever attended to race-based injuries. So colorblindness to the extent that it's been mobilized to attack race-based injury has now become mobilized to attack race-based remediation. And it's been far more effective in the latter project than the former. Um, one important caveat in all of this story is that the constitutional treatment of indigenous identity as distinct from race has never and does not now protect Indians from the ravages of racial oppression. Um, rather than treating race and sovereignty as entirely distinct, part of our project, uh, or, or as oppositional or dichotomous, uh, the symposium proposed instead to examine how race and sovereignty intersect and are mutually constitutive roughly how race enters sovereignty and how sovereignty enters race, even as important distinctions remain. 
And while indicating that these are not synonymous, synonymous constructs, we wanted to disrupt the analytical frame to map the ways that indigeneity was and is racialized and the way that racially subordinated peoples related to and through sovereignty. So given this project, obviously Patrick's work and his voice were clearly central to this conversation and remain so. Uh, debates between Patrick and the community of committed scholars to which Oslo uh, alluded earlier were all part of an important and pivotal intervention that animated uh, not only the moment but longer and multiple engagements, some of which have been alluded to. Notably, what's interesting is that Patrick and other scholars of ingenuity, and I include here uh, the work of people like Angela, Riley, and Jessica, uh, other scholars of indigeneity and settler colonialism had sought to intervene in this whole conversation from a different perspective, that is to resist the conflation of race with indigeneity, as mapped, uh, as Patrick maps in the introduction to traces of history. That is, he maps the ways in which these things are sometimes conflated um, and that lead to false and potentially dangerous analogies. The other part um, that was clear to me in going back and looking at both the earlier work and traces is that in reconfiguring, what he's doing is reconfiguring indigeneity as a central theme or analysis rather than a category of analysis. And in this way, the work sort of exposes settler colonialism famously as structure, not event. And this move, in turn, rips the mass or haze of history from practices that continuously reenact dispossession and elimination in the present. So all of these powerful aphorisms to which we've alluded that have become foundational, notwithstanding his desire that they not do so, um, he has captured crucial insights regarding a number of urgent questions, including race. So in Settler Colonialism and Elimination of the Native, which is the essay in Genocide Studies, I believe, he described how Settler Colonialism was grounded in and driven by a logic of elimination. Quote, contests for land, according to Wolf, can be, indeed, often are contests for life. Thus, genocide is often implicated in Settler Colonialism. At the same time, he notes, genocide is not necessarily a part of Settler Colonial projects, what they share is that both, quote, have typically employed an organizing grammar of race. So beginning here and distilled and refined in traces of history, he codifies the way that racial grammar differentially encodes blacks and Indians in the US. Slavery's racial categories of blackness represented a, quote, inclusive taxonomy, close quote, operating through the one drop rule, a logic that maximizes reproduction, as distinct from the construction of Indians as a restrictive category in which non-Indian ancestry diluted indigeneity and thus, quote, furthered logic of elimination. In mapping this foundational taxonomy concerning settler colonialism, he notes that it has both negative and positive dimensions, that, it is, that its object is not race but territory, and that it destroys to replace. His work was also an important reminder of the linkage between race and colonialism, that is, as he says, race is colonialism speaking, a trace of history, and I would argue a technology, in his words, through which colonialized populations to be racialized, uh, causes colonialized populations to be racialized in specific ways that mark out and reproduce the unequal relationships into which Europeans have co-opted these populations, close quote. So race then coerces both exclusion and assimilation, and these different racialized modes of oppressions cohere and were coalesced through property. As Wolf describes, the primitive accumulation of white property was structured through the appropriation of black labor and the dispossession of indigenous land. His provocation then asks that we reconfigure our understanding of race as both process of exclusion and erasure, or what he calls deracination. 
Pressing on this important provocation, I want to offer three interventions and thinking about the ways in which it's great to argue with Patrick. Um, so partly I want to think about what, the dif what difference has to say. So um, his articulation of black and indigenous racialization, importantly, is enlisted to understand how settler colonialism is structured and managed accumulation. That is, presumptively, he's concerned not with marking this difference for its own sake, but for rather in hearing the story that the difference tells. And in focusing on black and Indian racialization, there are other ways in which these processes of exclusion and erasure, the latter being what he terms deracination cohere, and this is the part what I think is implied, but I would argue is not fully stated, and that they are simultaneously an instantiation of whiteness. So it's not just race, it's whiteness. Um, so understanding whiteness as a form of property, as a structure, not object, uh, a way in which value is generated and conferred, both as Du Bois describes as, quote, uh, material and psychological wages, allows us to identify the role and power of whiteness in underwriting and legitimating the production of white property. And it is a construct that depended upon both exclusion of blacks from control or ownership of their labor and of native people from possession and control of their lands. Black people's commodification that become central to whiteness, as was black <coughs> women's reproductive capacity through which property was produced. Uh, under slavery, then, blacks were more than just a source of labor. They are a source of non-territorial property. <laughs> At the same time, that elimination of native people is key to white property as part of the project of racial replacement. Indigenous people, particularly indigenous women, are also a means of property transmission. That is, as Kevin Malliard writes in his cogent analysis of the so-called Pocahontas exception from Virginia's anti-miscegenation law, intermarriage with indigenous women was at times encouraged as, quote, an easy road to assimilation, close quote, and put bluntly, acquisition to property, at least through matrilineal groups. So both blackness and indigeneity are then central to the production of white property. I think that's all implied, but I think it, it's worth sort of stating. Uh, secondly, focusing on blackness and indigeneity, as he invites, takes us not only to the operation of race, but again to the construction of whiteness. And here we might consider Eileen Morton Robinson's Aboriginal scholar from Australia, the white possessive. Here she argues that European possession as enacted in Australia and other settler colonial states in both its proto-capitalist and capitalist forms is predicated on dispossession and the right to exclude. Thus, a property-owning subject, she says, is one that originates in possessive logics or modes of rationalization that justify expropriation. In contrast to this mode of understanding possession, she asserts that indigenous relationship to land constitutes a different ontological position. That is, the land is not a place that indigenous subjects occupy or possess, is a place that says who they are and that they are and through which they exist what she describes as, quote, the dialectical unity between humans and the earth, close quote. Settler nationhood originates then from the denial of this ontological position. And though there are no terms or tools of measurement that are adequate to calculate the material violence associated with this denial, it's the presumption that one can in fact do so, that is separate people from their land, that presumption. A fantasy, a dream that of course becomes an indigenous nightmare. The fantastical assertion that the land was terra nullius was the justification for dispossession and was simultaneously the claim through which whiteness was constituted and indigenous people became known as the aborigine and in Australia as black, as racialized inferior subjects. As white possession marks the birth of nationhood, whiteness becomes the metric of belonging. Um, so this is the sense in which we can map colonialism as a structure that operates not only through race, but one that operates through and is productive of whiteness. 
The third point is the relationship between law and power. So in Traces, Wook explains the way that the racialization of indigenous people in Australia represented the accumulated learning from early colonial, earlier colonial projects, including the failure of the British in the US colonies. So um, it's a very nice point. He talks about the way in which Australia learned from the British screw-ups in, uh, in the United States. Um, that is to say, they did not duplicate the system of chattel slavery nor the American system of recognition of native land title. Yet he finds parallels in the way that settler legal systems function not simply to, quote, replace one owner with another, but seek to replace an entire system of ownership with another, close quote. Thus he contends settler law constructs the issue of indigenous land claims as a conflict between sovereignties, quote, primordially external to one another. As such, given this externality, he says, the settler legal system resolves issue of ownership within its jurisdictional limits, and the question of its externality is simply and literally beyond its power. So he then reads together Johnson v. McIntosh, the sort of seminal 1823 decision where the U.S. Supreme Court refuses native sovereignty. He reads those together with the Australian cases, Coe versus Commonwealth from the 1990s and the Yorta Yorta case, where indigenous rights and land were similarly negated. And he points to passages in both of them that are quite parallel for interests of time. I, I won't read them, but just trust me, he's absolutely dead on right. Um, the logic is um, uh, very much the same. And what they basically say is that uh, the restriction may be imposed to natural right and to the usages of, of civilizations, meaning the restriction on indigenous title may be against the usages of civilized nations, yet it be indefensible to that system under which the country has been settled and be adapted to the actual condition, it, it can perhaps be supported by reason, but certainly cannot be rejected by courts of justice. So basically the court is saying this kind of is the way it is. We have to sort of take this as it is. This may not align with our understanding of the way in which rights uh, should go, but this is the way it is. Um, so interestingly, uh, Patrick declines to deplore these judgments, quote, as it's hard to see what else they could have said. The judges, quote, were not creating the basis on which the systems of ownership they adjudicated were founded. They were simply acknowledging that it was not up to them to question that basis. And that because of this, he says, law was, quote, not creating the basis of the systems of ownership being adjudicated. And to track native sovereignty, he argues, quote, requires us to look outside the settler legal system, a requirement that takes us directly to the priority of force. I think there is something of a slippage here. Um, while Wolf astutely mapped the through line between U.S. and Australian juridical logics, I argue that he has perhaps too quickly absolved the courts and law in particular. In accepting these asserted limitations as not normally justified but as empirically correct, it may allow the court, the law and its practitioners to escape accountability and most significantly overlook an important dimension of the ideological and material structure of race that he so rigorously excavates. So the point is, from the critical race perspective, race and law are mutually constitutive, and we understand that law does not simply reflect or accede to race as an idea or regime or reality that is constituted elsewhere. It has an active role in the construction of that reality and indeed constructs the reality to which it claims deference. Thus, when Wolf suggests that we must look outside the legal system to locate the priority of force in dealing with the externality of native sovereignty, I would offer the late Robert Cover's classic essay, Violence and the Word, the way in which force is deeply constitutive of law, not a force external to it. Um, and Cover's uh, very beautiful essay starts with this phrase, legal interpretation takes place in a field of pain and death. 
This is true in several senses, legal interpretive acts signal and occasion the imposition of violence upon others, and he goes on to give examples. The point here is that if we take Wolf to mean that the use of, of, form, of the use of force is violence, then he seems to take law and legal actors to be outside of, or perhaps better said, ancillary to violence and force, and I don't want to let them off. Um, the argument could be made that the legal interpretation put forward in Johnson and its modern heirs is sutured to an instance of violence. Law is an expression of state power exercised both affirmatively, tells us which claims are cognizable, and negatively, which claims are not. Thus, while Wolf says, quote, possession is not ownership, close quote, the role of the law is to say when it is, and with respect to indigenous land tenure, to say when possession is not in fact possession. Both of these are assertions and expressions of state power, and it means that we, we must reread these classic judicial texts as productive and generative of the racial regimes through which settler colonialism is enacted. Uh, I'm going to stop here in the interest of time. I have another point, but I think I want to hear from some of you. Thank you. Thank you.